Hello there, welcome to Main Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're talking about Dana White Contender Series Week 3. We're already up to Week 3. The last few weeks have just flown by. Week 2 was very exciting. At the end of the episode, we'll give you a full summary of our picks to win, along with some parlay ideas, and hopefully we're going to get back to the winning ways. But as for this week, Week number 3 for Dana White Contender Series, the main event's going to feature Bo Nickel, the highly anticipated young prospect, the former Penn State wrestler, three-time national champion wrestler, Olympic trials qualifier, freestyle wrestling former state champion in texas only fought one pro fight had a few amateur bouts he's in the main event and people are excited to see him five bouts in total we do have a women's bout this weekend we've got sandra this weekend tuesday night sandra lovato versus carolina wojcik should be a good bout again five bouts in total we'll go over each fight one fight at a time give you some background information on the fighters talk about some film study with that said guys let's jump into it here we go The card opens up with a women's bout in the strawweight division at 115 pounds between Karolina Wojcik, who goes by the Polish assassin, and yes, she hails from Poland, squaring off against Sandra Lovato, who goes by the Peruvian zombie. These nicknames make perfect sense because you know where she's from? Peru. Okay. Peruvian zombie is 10 and 2 overall. 4 1 her last five fights. She hails from Lima, Peru. I believe that's the capital of Peru. 28 years old. We don't have a reach number on her, and we don't have a height number on her. But having watched film on her, she is very tall and long. And then Carolina Wojcik is the opposite. I'm imagining Sandra's going to have somewhere between five inches, possibly, of height advantage and somewhere in the range of maybe seven to eight inches for the reach. It's going to play a role. She can use it to win the fight. I don't think that Carolina will let her use it because Carolina likes to close distance. And I like Carolina in this matchup a lot. Let me get out of the way. I like Carolina as maybe my most favorite pick on this card for this evening. To me, she has all the tools to win the fight. There's a lot of question marks about Sandra's record, who she's fought before, and the way she fights in general. So when it comes to size, I, I gather that Sandra will be taller, she'll be longer, whereas Carolina will have a little bit more girth, which will help her with the ground attack. Now, as for Sandra Lovato, she trains out of Maximo's Combat Club. For Carolina Wojcik, who goes by the Polish Assassin, she's 8-2 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights. She hails out of Krakow, Poland. I think I said that right, Krakow. 27 years old, 5'2 in height, with a 62.2 inch reach, and she's out of grappling, crack cow, and also does some training out of reps MMA. As for the votes coming in on Tapology, by no surprise, Wojcik is the favorite, getting 85% of the votes, only 15% coming in for Lovato. There's no secret here. If you do any research in this fight and you do any kind of film watching or do any research in Tapology, you're going to see some red flags for Lovato. When it comes to Wojcik, a little more film out there. She's definitely fought at higher level competition, and she's a scrapper. She's one of the people that if you put, if you bet on her, basically, you're not going to regret it. She's going to go out there and fight for your money. She won't let you down. Now, looking at the background of these two fighters, for Carolina Wojcik, she's from Poland, as we mentioned before. She had an 8-1 amateur record. Now, looking back at her amateur career, her first amateur bout was against someone you might recognize, Corey McKenna. 2016, six years ago, she lost round one via rear naked choke in the UK Fighting Championships. That was her first ever fight as an amateur, but good opponent. Of course, Corey McKenna just picked up a win last weekend in the UFC. She went on from there to win eight straight amateur bouts before going pro. She went professional in 2018. She's fought in KSW and Brave CF. She has a combined record of 3-0 in those two promotions, and those are very good promotions with good competition. So that right there in itself, we don't have anything in the background of Sandra Lovato that compares to anything like KSW or Brave CF for, for competition level. Now, prior opponents for Carolina Wojcik, she fought Alexandra Rola last year, won by decision. She fought Silwai Josevich. I'm, I'm going to try the best I can. Some of these names are, I'm going to butcher them. She fought her 2022 years ago, won that fight by decision. 
She fought Maria Ribeiro, 2019 Brazilian fighter, won the fight by split decision. Now, going back a little further, this fight really impressed me. Cheyenne Vlismus, at that time she was Cheyenne Vlismus, and then she became Cheyenne Bays, and now she's back to Cheyenne Vlismus. They fought in 2018. Split decision loss, for Carolina that is, in EFC Worldwide 74. I watched the fight. I watched it really closely. I thought Carolina won the fight. That's just my humble opinion. I thought she may have dropped possibly round one, but man, round two and three, to me, I she won the fight. That was my opinion. A lot of good takedowns, top control. She was backing up Cheyenne Vlismus. Cheyenne's gotten better since then, but that was, you know, Cheyenne's still learning. She had a little bit of a cardio dump. Overall, from top to bottom, that win has aged very well. Carolina has a win over a girl who's in the UFC, who's having some success in the UFC, and she just out manhandles Cheyenne at some points, takes her down, gets top control. She's gritty. I do love that about Carolina. She's very gritty. She'll go out there, like I said, she will earn her money. I like that she's not going to back down from competition. She'll brawl with you. If you get in her face, you want to start swinging, she'll do that. Cheyenne did that with her, and she matched Cheyenne's intensity, and then eventually Cheyenne got a little tired, and she kind of took over. Nonetheless, on the tapology, it shows up as a loss by split decision. I thought she won the fight. Now, what's to like about Carolina? We mentioned before, super-duper gritty. I mean, I can't say it enough. She's just the kind of person who's scrappy, will do whatever it takes to bring her opponent to the ground and to keep fighting. She doesn't mind getting hit. She's got a pretty good chin. She'll trade a few punches. She'll go back and forth. And then it becomes like a war of attrition. She'll stand with you like a staring contest. Who's going to blink first? She won't blink. She'll keep coming forward. She does a great job of the forward pressure and pace. So if you're fighting her, you're forced to work off your back foot. And that was like Cheyenne Vlismus, for example. Cheyenne Vlismus, who's a good fighter, very confident fighter, was forced after a while to work off that back foot. She's got that pressure and pace. And if you've watched Lovato fight, Lovato doesn't mind circling. She'll do that with some prior fights. She will be forced to circle here. The pressure will be on her. And then eventually at some point I see Lovato getting squashed against the fence because you're gonna have Carolina pushing her up against the fence and closing distance completely. What she lacks in size for Carolina, she makes up in size, grit, determination. So yes, she'll be smaller. She's always smaller. She always has the shorter arms, but she comes forward. She throws combinations, not an amazing four or five combination, but a one, two combination. She comes forward. She'll try to hurt you with her hands. But eventually the whole plan is to get in there nice and tight, get the body lock, she's shorter, get her head under your chin, make you uncomfortable, and then scrape you to the ground. That's what she does very well. Her wrestling game is where she butters her bread. Now, what are my concerns for Carolina? She's always undersized. It has to be brought up. If you're a good technician from the outside and you got the long range, which Sandra has, and you can work the jab and technique, that's the path to victory. So she always has to overcome the size factor. She can get a little bit wild at times, I mentioned before. She doesn't mind trading with her opponent. That has an expiration date. You can't just keep doing that. Now, you can do it for small moments. Maybe you feel the power of your opponent. But she worries me sometimes when she just starts cutting loose, no regard for her chin, not blocking anything. She has no jab and no lower leg kick. And the reason why that's important is they'll set things up, right? They set up other jabs or other combinations or, you know, jabs to the follow-up one-two combination. Um, or if you have a leg kick, setting things up to get people off balance. She doesn't have a consistent jab or lower leg kick, and it makes sense. If you remember Mike Tyson back in the day, he wasn't a jab guy. He, you know, dip and bob and set up a big power punch. For her, it's a little bit like that. She'll lean in heavy. She'll come in to land a few shots, then get out of range, but she can't really have a sustained jab, and especially gets to the point like this where she is giving up a lot in the reach. So I'd like to see her improve with maybe a lower leg kick at some point, add that to her arsenal. That's a way for her to make up for that distance. You know, your legs are longer than your arms, but just something I observed. Um... Concerns, concerns. What else do I have concern with? She gets off balance. Yes. So when she leans in for a big shot, 
She has to close range, right? Just simple physics. As she does that, she's leaning in heavy, heads wide open. You compare it to a bunch of fighters who fight this way, those Dagestani wrestling guys who lean in heavy with a big overhand shot, try to close distance. As she's doing that, she leaves herself wide open for some kind of a counter. I don't think that happens here in this fight, but eventually as she moves up the ladder, I think it could be a potential problem. Now, as for Sandra Lovato, who's from Peru, she would become the first female UFC Peruvian fighter if she were to win the fight, get the contract. But there's not there's another fight on the roster from, from Peru. You'll recognize him, Claudio Puelas, who's currently in the UFC roster, like at a five-fight winning streak, doing very well. So she would be the second fighter from Peru, but I believe the first and only female uh, in the UFC from Peru. So cheering her on if you're from Peru. I'm sure her people back there are hoping she cracks through. She's been professional in 2016, no amateur record. She's fought in combate and FFC. Combate's not bad, not KSW, but not that bad. Some of her prior opponents, she fought Carla Sanchez Lozano, 2019 split decision loss. She also fought Lozano before in 2018 and she lost by decision. Here's where we're gonna start going into the topology of Sandra Lovato. I'll try to keep it short and sweet because it gets a little bit squirrely at some point. She fought Carla Sanchez Lozano, Lozano, not Lovato. Sandra Lovato's fought against Carla Sanchez Lozano. And she lost both times. Those are the only two losses she has in her pro career. It's against Carla Sanchez Lozano. She fought Lena Franco Rodriguez, 2019, three years ago. That's the only person who Sandra Lovato has beaten that has a winning record. I'll say it again. That's the only person that she's won against that has a winning record. And of course, you look at her record, she's currently sitting at 10 and two. So nine wins were against people that were like 0 and 1, 0 and 2, 1 and 5, 2 and 3, 0 and 2. And then she has one win over someone with a winning record and that person is 4 and 3. So it wasn't like she beat someone who was 7-0. She beat Lena Franco, who's now sits at 4 and 3. So kind of puts things in perspective. The record is not uh, super impressive. I did some more calculation on some of these people she fought against, right? So check this out. The combined record of the people that she beat is 13 and 22. That's the combined record. Now, the things I do like about Lovato, very long arms, long legs. If she can use the reach to her advantage, she'll have a big advantage in this fight. This fighter is much shorter than her, much smaller, but she'll have to use good footwork. And to be able to use that range that she has, she has to stay at range. If it gets close, gets squashed up, the range becomes nullified. She works well behind her jab. She keeps her jab out there. It's very active. And when she gets it going and lands it a few times, she can now start landing some other combinations off the jab. She has a prototypical Latin fire in her. What I mean by that is when the fights get tough and people start bleeding, she gets more fired up. She's not going to back down. She will circle. Yes, she'll be the person working off the back foot, but she's got that Latin fire in her, that Central American fire, that Mexican warrior. She's got some of that and she doesn't mind a bloodbath, doesn't mind fighting back, doesn't mind getting clipped, doesn't mind getting hurt a little bit. And I do like that about her. Now, my concerns for her, number one, takedown defense. Not great. On top of not being good at takedown defense, when she gets taken down, she's not getting up. That's a gigantic problem in a fight like this where you have a, a fighter in Carolina who will be looking for takedowns. Her grappling, you know, it's okay. It's not terrible, but it's not very good against better grapplers. I guess that's an obvious point, right? When she faces people that are better at grappling, it tends to expose her. And I think this matchup will, will do that. Her striking is improving, but it's rough at times. Like it's got the elbows out and it's not very fluid. It becomes looping, especially when she looks like she wants to, you know, finish an opponent or maybe she got somebody hurt. It gets really wild. And with these long skinny arms, Technique is important to get the most power in her punches. At times, I question how much power is on these punches. 
Then again, I've seen her bust up some of her opponents. So she's got like sneaky power, long arms. But if you know about punching, if she hits someone with her arm like really bent, like in close, and it's not fully extended, there's not nearly as much power on that as if when she gets her arm fully extended and like rips it as the full arm extends and hits someone at that point. Again, just some more technical stuff there, but she needs to stay at distance to be able to, you know, get her get her thing going and be able to get her, her momentum going for the kind of fight that she wants to have. Her striking defense, not the greatest, okay? I think at times she's not worried about getting hit because she doesn't respect the power of her opponent. Her guard is loose. It's never fully up. Her hands are just kind of here. With being such a long fighter, she's probably used to picking people apart, staying at range, and not worried about getting hit with jabs. Shouldn't be a factor in this fight, except for with Carolina, she will close distance. And when she closes that distance, Sandra needs to be a little bit more responsible about guarding her face, because she will come in there fast, get a few punches, and jump back out. Last but not least, this will be a gigantic step up in competition for Sandra. When we talk about her topology here in this last concern I have for her, you'll see what I'm talking about. This will be by far her toughest competition. She's fought no one even close to the pedigree of Carolina Wojcik. And let's look at her topology. So, she has, what, 10 wins in her career? Well, only one of those wins was over an opponent that has a winning record to this day. So, nine wins were against people that were like 0-1, 0-2. There was somebody who was in there 1-5. The combined record of the people that she's defeated, so that's nine of her 10 wins, is 13 wins and 22 losses. Yeah, way below 500. And the only win that she has against someone with a winning record is against Lena Franco-Rodriguez, who's four and three, hasn't fought in three years. Looks like maybe her career is over. Just not much to work with there. She has fought some of the lowest level of competition you can imagine. And then when she fought anything that was even a bit of a step up, she had a bit, bit of a problem with that. This to me is a great setup fight for Car uh, Carolina. I think the people that have set this up for her, her management, however they got this done, good for them. Now, the only question would be, can she finish this tough Latin American fighter? That's where it's going to be tough. At the same time, does Dana really expect the girls to always finish each other? I think if it's just a good fight and you get a little bit of blood, if it's aggressive, he'll be inclined to fight, you know, to sign the Polish fighter. I'm not sure what the roster is like in the UFC for this division. That's always a part of it. People forget that they're signing fighters to the roster. A lot of it's based upon need, right? Supply and demand. If they need more fighters in that division, like heavyweights, for example, they're going to be more inclined to, to bring them in. So I'm not really sure about this division. But for her to get a path to getting a contract, it's going to have to be a one-sided fight. You have to just rough up Sandra a little bit, but I don't see Sandra tapping out or somehow, you know, giving up or getting TKO'd. I just don't see that happening. We watched a handful of fights to bring down this film. We watched Wojcik versus Lismas from 2018, Wojcik versus Zako, Lovato versus Rodriguez, and Lovato versus Sanchez. Those four fights are available down below here on YouTube in our description as part of our free video library. Last few thoughts on this fight. I have a really solid lean here on our girl Carolina Wojcik. To me, you have the prototypical, more experienced fighter who's fought better competition in KSW versus a fighter who has some talent, who's got some ability, but still quite raw, has some physical deficiencies. Being tall and long, she reminds me a little bit of Mazo. Remember Mazo? I forgot her first name, but Mazo came in from, I believe, Colombia, uh, South American, Central American athlete. And that tall, long body that looks so good on film against lower opponents with the knees and the clinch and the, you know, the tie, knee clinch and all this stuff. She looked amazing. She comes to the UFC and she just gets raked to the ground again and again and then cannot get back up. It'll be a learning experience for Sandra. She's still very young, 
but I believe that Karina Wojcik should be one of the locks of this card. For me, I'm going to parlay her. I'm not going to play her straight up for too much money. Again, I don't want to expose myself that much. It is still young fighters, but I feel very confident in her. I like her by decision. I don't see a finish happening. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we have a flyweight bout at 125 pounds between the American fighter Clayton Carpenter, who goes by Concrete. Clayton Concrete Carpenter, three C's, I like that, versus Edgar Chares. Chares? I might be butchering that last name. I apologize. Edgar goes by Pitbull. They should officially retire that moniker. No one should be able to use that nickname anymore. It's been beat to death already. If I was a coach in a gym and an athlete came in and said, oh, yeah, coach, they call me Pitbull, I'd say, the door. We can't use this name anymore. Nonetheless, we've got Edgar Pitbull Shires sitting eight and three overall, three and two in his last five fights. A little more experience, about double the amount of MMA pro fights than Clayton Carpenter, his opponent. Edgar Shires is from Mexico, 26 years old, five foot seven in height. We do not have a reach number on him. I'm going to speculate his reach will be significantly longer than Clayton Carpenter because he'll be two inches taller. And if you've watched Edgar on film, he's a very lean guy. He's very long though it's not always to his benefit. I want to talk about one fight in particular he had a few years ago uh, as we go over his profile, that he fought a guy who was shorter and it didn't really work out to his advantage. That guy squashed the distance, closed distance, made it an ugly fight. Now looking at Clayton Carpenter, who goes by concrete, again, undefeated, based out of Arizona, 26 years old, five foot five in height, he's out of MMA lab. That is notable. That's a very good gym. He's been there for a while. He's got some chemistry with that gym. He's had them with him now for a few fights. As again, for Edgar Chires, I'm not sure where he's training out of. I don't have anything that I've been able to uncover. If you do know, please comment down below, enlighten us. As for the public votes coming in on Tapology, Carpenter is getting almost all the votes. 91% coming in for Carpenter. I like him. Money line's a little chalky. I think Chires is a very live dog, but I'm going to side with Carpenter. I like Carpenter to win this fight, most likely by a decision. Chires' game, he's not going to be an easy guy to get rid of. Let me run over the background of these two fighters. For Clayton Carpenter, he's from Arizona, as we mentioned before. He had a 6-1 amateur record. He went professional in 2019, so been a pro for about three years. He fought for LFA, part of the, part of this uh, opportunity right now with the Edward Contender Series, and he was 3-0 in LFA. His prior opponents, his last three opponents, he fought Rodney Kolehi, 2021, last year, had a round one KO win. Rodney is 5-3 overall. At least he's got a positive winning percentage. He fought Nick Clem, 2021, also last year, had a round one submission win. Nick Clem is 3-2 overall. Carpenter did miss weight in that fight, and he also fought Manuel Medina, 2020, decision win. Medina is 1-2 overall. If you look at that fight in the vacuum, and you consider the fact that Medina is 1-2 overall and doesn't have much experience, that wasn't the best That wasn't the best performance for Clayton. The fight was a little too close for comfort. It went to decision. He got it easily, but still a fight that you'd like to see him improve upon, and I think he has improved since then. Now, what's to like about Clayton's game? A very high finish rate. Of his five professional wins, four have been finishes, two by TKO and two by submission. Very good wrestler. I think he's got a wrestling background. I say I think, I don't know, but based upon the way he fights, he's very good at wrestling. He's also very quick and athletic and explosive. He also has a variety of kicks, leg kicks, body kicks, spinning kicks. He does damage with the knees. So especially when he has an opponent up against the fence, he'll do a great job with the knees. He uses them in combination. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Carpenter? Well, the quality of competition. That's the common theme in most of the Dana White Contenders Series opponents. Who has fought the weaker schedule? Basically, that's the question you're asking yourself. He also can get a little wild at times. That seems to be a young fighter thing. If you haven't been knocked out before and you haven't been chin-checked, then you kind of still feel like you're invincible and you're young. You have more propensity to go out there and go swinging. And he, he will do that sometimes. He'll get a little wild. So he's got to tone that down, be a little more careful, because there's always the opportunity to face a guy who can counterpunch you. 
As for Edgar Charez, who's from Mexico, he was 4-0 as an amateur. He went professional in 2016, so been a pro for about six years. He made his pro debut in 2016 with a flying knee in round one for a finish, like 37-second knockout. Very explosive way to come onto the professional scene. He fought in Combate prior to this opportunity. Combate's a pretty good promotion. His last few opponents, he fought Ivan Hernandez Flores, 2022, a round two TKO win. That was this year, earlier this year. Ivan is 10-4-1 overall. Decent record. He also fought Mefi Monterezo, 2021, a round two TKO win. Mefi is 6-3 overall. And then he fought Jesus Santos Aguilar, 2020, a round five submission loss. So it must have been a main event, obviously. And Jesus is 7-1 overall, so pretty good fighter. Edgar Chariz, he fought 2019, three years ago, against a guy named Alberto Trujillo. Now, Trujillo, I don't think his record does him justice. He's sitting at 6-2, so not very impressive. This guy fought against Edgar Chavez, and he won the fight by decision, and he won the fight for two specific reasons. One, he was able to wrestle Chavez. He closed distance. This guy was much shorter than Edgar, giving up reach and height. I mean, I would say at least the reach disadvantage must have been around seven inches. Okay, so the reach disadvantage was there, but Alberto closes distance. He squashes the fight up, gets it against the fence, makes it ugly, and then peels down Chavez to the ground again and again. But in one moment in round two, I couldn't help but to notice this. They're both standing and Edgar Chavez pulls guard while they're standing up. You know what I'm talking about? Like two guys on their feet or two gals and one person just jumps up and puts their legs around the other person's hips and tries to pull guard. He does this, pulls guard, and then never gets up off the ground for the rest of the round. And I'm like, all right, dude, you made the mistake. You pulled guard. You took position. You took, you gave a position to pursue a submission. You never got close to the submission, whatever. Round three, what happens? They come out in round three. He gets taken down right away. His corner says something to him when he's out there on his back. And this dude does some kind of gesture to his corner. Oh, yeah, I'm, I, I got it. You know when someone's saying, like, I got it. I'm good. I'm good. Well, what do you think happens? He doesn't get up. Low fighter IQ, a level of stubbornness that I couldn't really quite explain from watching that fight. Granted, it was three years ago. I'm sure he has improved. Since then, he's picked up three wins and a loss. This will be a big step in competition. A guy who knows how to wrestle and grapple. A guy with a high motor who will keep coming at him. And then if he makes this mistake of trying to pull guard or trying to find a submission or laying on his back for long periods of time, he will lose the fight. I am on Clayton Carpenter to win the fight. I just wish the money line wasn't so chalky. I can't bet this straight up. At minus 275, I don't have that kind of confidence. These are very young fighters. He'll be in one or two of my parlays. I wish the money line was more like minus 175 to minus 200, which is where I think it really should be. I think Carpenter is, is the favorite, justifiably so. But man, these guys are young. We saw what happened last week on the Contender Series where you had Ross. Ross was like the big favorite. Everyone was talking about Ross this, Ross that. Ross lost. These guys are young. There's a lot of variance in how these guys can perform. I'm going to side with Clayton Carpenter at minus 275-ish. A good parlay piece for me. Not going to play it straight up. That's my breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Moving on up the car, we've got a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Eric Silva, who goes by King, he hails from Venezuela, and Anbar Boyz Nazarov, who goes by the Uzbek. And yes, you guessed it, he's from Uzbekistan. The Uzbek is 3-0, undefeated, not much experience, but undefeated, 33 years old, 5'9", in height with a 69-inch reach, and he trains out of Tiger Muay Thai. When you look at topology, it says he's out of Fuck It. Yeah, that sounds like I'm saying fuck it, but no, that's the pronunciation of the city. It's Phuket or fuck it. That's out of Thailand. That's the city. As for Eric Silva, the king, he's 8-1 overall. Not undefeated, but a little more experienced and has a seven-fight winning streak, I believe. 5 foot 10 in height. No reach number on him. No age number on him. Trains out of Antonio Silva Mixed Martial Arts. 
Having looked at him on film, I'm going to guess he's about 30 years old, give or take a few years. So in the same age bracket as Onbar, he doesn't look like he's like 19 or 20 and doesn't look like he's 40 years old, right? So after the tapology votes here, Silva is the favorite, getting 79% of the votes, only 21% coming in for the Uzbekistan fighter. I do agree. I like Silva in the spot. A little surprised the money line is where it's at. I would have expected, having watched some film on both fighters and seeing the public votes, that we would see Anvar um, as the bigger underdog here. And, I mean, I'm okay with this. I, I do like the Venezuela fighter to win the fight. I think he's more athletic. I think he's a little more explosive. I think he'd be much faster than the feet. He's on a winning streak. He's got four wins in a row via submission, via rear naked choke to be exact. So a lot of things to like here about the Venezuelan fighter. Some information about Anvar. Anvar has a Muay Thai base. He fought in Muay Thai as his original mixed martial arts before moving over to mixed martial arts as his now current sport. He went professional 2015 with no amateur record. He fought in LFA and Combat Night before this opportunity. So LFA, very good promotion, good competition. Here's the thing, the last few opponents, not the best competition. His last fight was against John Pham earlier this year. Had a round one KO win in 21 seconds. Very exciting win. Pham is 4-3 and three overall. My man, Pham. Before that, he fought Rob Fuller last year, 2021. Round one KO win. Now, Rob Fuller is 2-16 and 16 overall. And if you go back and watch the film, you'll see why he's 2-16. and 16. He's just not a very good fighter. He goes in there and just starts swinging for the fences, hopes it lands. And most of the time, it does not. And then he fought Henry Crapp, C-R-A-P-P. Uh, Mr. Henry Crapp is 0-3, and he got the win there. Anvar beat Henry Crapp by a round one KO in 2020. The combined record of his three mixed martial arts opponents, and that's his 3-0 record, right, is 6-22. and It's not his fault. You got to fight who's in front of you, and he is very young. You should fight, you know, guys you can beat when you're young, right? Get the momentum going. Pad the record a little bit. But the bottom line is he has not fought anyone of substance. And these are the only three fights he has on his topology, the only three that I'm aware of. Now, he does have some finishing ability, as been, has been displayed here against the opponents he's been against. Yes, low level, but he's got some knockout power. He's finishing these guys with his hands. He also has a really good lower leg kick. When he uses it, it's a nice, powerful, solid lower leg kick. He doesn't use it enough to my liking, but he does have it as part of his arsenal. Now, what are my concerns here for the Uzbekistan fighter? He can get a little reckless at times. Both fighters can. We'll talk about the other fighter in a second, but they both can get a little reckless at times. And when you're doing that, just swinging for the fences, anything's possible. It's worked for him up to this point, but there's always a, a shelf life on fighting that way, right? He has fought a very easy strength of schedule, as we mentioned already before. He hasn't been tested. He hasn't fought guys that are top promotions or guys with winning record. And the big thing that I found from watching film on the Uzbekistan fighter here, Anvar, he's not very athletic. He, he's a bit slow. And that blew me away. This is like 145 pounds. These are smaller athletic, you know, division, but he does not throw punches very fast. They're easy to see. I think that Silva's going to have a significant speed advantage over him. Now the power advantage, that's arguable, but when it comes to just speed, if Silva looks like a takedown or a sweep or body lock or just anything, if he moves quickly, I think he's there before Anvar even reacts. Now, as for Eric Silva, the Venezuelan fighter, he has no amateur experience either. He went professional in 2016, so been a pro for about six years. Last fight was against Edgar Garcia Vega. Earlier this year, had a round one rear naked choke in the first round. Vega is 18-7 overall. Decent fighter. Some okay experience. Not in the highest level, but okay experience. He's got an over 500 level record, or at least a positive winning percentage. Daniel Vega, 2021, round one rear naked choke win. And Vega is currently 12-7-1 overall. Another guy with positive at least winning percentage. And then Eric Radlim, 
2021 round one Renicky choke win and Red Liam is sitting at seven and eight overall. Those are his last three opponents. Much like his opponent in this matchup here, like Anvar, not the best of quality of competition, but at least these guys here have winning percentages uh, for their for their records and not guys who are like, you know, negative winning percentages, put it that way. Now what's to like here about Silva? He's on a seven fight winning streak. He's got a very good ground game. You can see it on film, it pops out to you right away. He uses strikes to set up the ground attack. A little bit like those Dagestani guys where they'll just throw big overhand rights to set up the ground game. The thing is, he's actually a pretty good striker, but you see he's always looking for the takedown. It's always part of his game plan. And once in the ground, he's a great grappler. His last four fights, all four wins, have been by rear naked choke. That's obvious a move that he likes and he's working on. He's very athletic and explosive, and I think he'll be much faster. As soon as the fight starts, I think the first few exchanges, you're going to see there's a big quickness advantage on the side here for Silva. He's also looking to set his pace. He sets the tone. He drives the car in this relationship, this fight that's going on. He's going to set the tone, force his opponent to work off the back foot. He also has a very nice front kick to the body, like that push kick, which he'll use to the body to manage distance. And just overall, I think we'll have the better athletic advantage on the feet, on the ground. He'll be much, much faster. Now, what are my concerns for Silva? Some of the same concerns that I have for Anvar. Unproven. We just don't know how they react against a better fighter against being pressured, being cut, being dazed. They're very young. There's just a lot of blind spots for us. And we really can't compare the strength of schedule. I'm saying to you that I think the strength of schedule is maybe a little better for Silva. He's fought a guys with winning percentages for records, but we really just don't know. These guys are all low level, you know, type of fighters. So it's hard to gauge who's really fought the better fighters. Now, my other concern for Silva, he gets reckless. I mentioned before that Anvar gets reckless. They both do. And Silva likes to come forward. If you're just coming forward and you're swinging, your chin's wide open. It's a matter of time. Again, like we said before, there's a, there's a shelf life on that kind of fighting style. If you want to come forward, be aggressive, good head movement, you've got your guard up, that's one thing. But that's not what I've seen from Silva on film. He will come forward with a lot of faith in his chin, being explosive. He's got his hair like in a man, you know, a man bun, and he's coming at you. A little bit of like, kind of reminds me of Clay Guida, if I can compare him to a fighter. It's worked for him thus far. Again, got to be careful with a guy who's going to catch you with a counter. I don't think that's going to happen in this fight because Anvar, again, a bit slow. I don't think he's going to be fast enough to, to make that move and catch Eric Silva with a counter. But it's one of the issues that I fought, saw on film with Silva. Gets a little bit wild. He'll trade with you. Considering that, though, we're not going to have a boring fight. You have two guys that are willing to bang. If we get into round two, we get into round three. There hasn't been a finish by then. I fully expect these guys at some point to just stand there right toe-to-toe -to -toe, and just trade in the pocket until someone falls. There should be a finish at some point. These guys both fight with a certain reckless abandon. And that's my one criticism I had to have here uh, of Silva. Also, the issue of a cardio dump. His last four fights have all been finished in round one via rear naked choke. That's great. But he hasn't been in round two or round three in over three years. Could he get to round two and be like, holy shit, my body's not used to this and, and I've tried the submissions, they're not working and go into some kind of mode where he's not used to and become a cardio issue? Again, blind spots. I'm just trying to bring up some hypotheticals, things to look out for. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Vera versus Silva from last year. We watched Anvar Boisnazadov versus Fom from earlier this year and Anvar Boisnazadov versus Fuller from last year. If you want to watch any one of those three fights as part of our free video library, Take a look down below here on YouTube. You'll see the three links available in the description. By conclusion here, I'm going with Silva to win via round one submission. If not round one, round two submission, most likely by rear naked choke. I'm not going to make this a difficult prediction. That's his, that's his choice. That's his method of victory. 
I believe he has an athletic advantage here. Could he crack his opponent and get him hurt? Yeah, he's done that before. And after he cracks his opponent, he jumps in their back and goes to the choke. I think for him, it's his preferred method. If he has an opportunity with his opponent stunned, he'll jump on their back and look for the submission. He's going to try that here. I like this spot at minus 130, minus 150 in the money line. I'm going to play it. Hopefully, I'm not going to jinx myself. I'm going to play it straight up, and I will parlay it with one or two different parlays, which will be available on our profile. You can check that out at some point between now and Tuesday. We'll also tweet out some of our bets. But I like this spot here. I think Silva, to me, is, man, he is a steal. I, I think he should be sitting at, like, minus 300. That's just my opinion. Nonetheless, I'll try to keep it quiet so the line doesn't move too much between now and then. I like Silva. I'm playing Silva. Don't let the OV at the end of the name fool you. He's a bit of a slowing, plotting fighter. Hasn't fought very good competition. And I think Silva comes in here and gets wild on him, takes the fight over, and finishes the fight in round one. That's your breakdown, guys. Look at this fight. Moving up the card, next fight's going to be a heavyweight clash between Paul Renato Jr., who hails from Brazil, and the American fighter Jamal Pogues. Full disclosure, I have not watched a single lick, not even five seconds, of Paulo Renato Jr. on film. I don't think there's film out there of him. He had some kickboxing background, amateur level, pro level, but otherwise, it's pretty much like Ghost. We don't have much on him. He's obviously 10 and 1, 28 years old. He's 6 foot in height. Makes me think of some other 6 foot heavyweights. Those guys tend to be more roundish, right? Because 6 foot being shorter, not as tall as some of the other heavyweights. So I'm expecting him to have like a Carlos Felipe type of build. No reach number here for Paul Renato Jr. He's out of Infinity Fight Team. As for Jamal Pogues, who goes by the Stormtrooper, that's a cool moniker. He's 8-3 and three overall, about the same type of experience. Fought 11 total fights compared to 11 for Paul Renato Jr. Jamal is 4-1 in his last five fights, hailing out of California, 26 years old, 2 years younger. 6 foot 3 in high with a 77-inch reach, and he's out of Joe Stevenson's Cobra Kai. As for the public votes coming on Tapology, Renato Jr. is getting 70% and only 30% coming in for Pogues. Interesting because the money line has Pogues favored at minus 275-ish, so the money line is flipped compared to the public votes and typology that can maybe be explained by the fact that we don't know much about this guy <laughs> there's just not much out there and maybe people look at the lineup and think oh it's a brazilian guy and maybe he has an edge let's talk a little bit about the background of these two fighters i want to talk about jamal pogues first let's look at his typology he fought on dana contender series back in 2018 he got a win unfortunately I'm sorry, 2019. He got the win by decision and was not, unfortunately, given a contract. We'll talk more about that in a second. He fought in, um, he fights, out of, I'm sorry, he fights out of a traditional right-handed stance. His prior opponents, for Jamal Pogue, that is, he fought Tim Healy, highly, I'm sorry, 2020. He won by decision. That was LFA, good promotion. That was in September of 2020, literally almost two years ago. That's a glaring flag right here. Two-year layoff. For Mr. Jamal Pogues. Prior to that, he lost to Alex Polizzi. That's the guy who got his jaw broken by Romero recently. He lost that fight round four via heel hook to Alex Polizzi. Then going back to his Dana White contender series fight 2019, three years ago, against Marcos Bragago. <laughs> Such a tough name to pronounce. Anyway, watch the fight and you'll see two things. Two things will pop out to you. Number one, Jamal Pogues has a good wrestling attack. Double leg takedown, changes levels, had something crazy like seven or eight takedowns in that one fight. But the problem was he started to gas out in round three. And for him, when he gasses out, he just moves backwards, not side to side. He just kind of falls backwards, balls up a little bit, takes a few shots. If you're off balance, he'll shoot. He kept shooting, getting takedowns. He would have the guy down for a minute, then back up, back away. You could just sort of feel Dana White like cringing, like, dude, what are you doing? Are you going to get it for a finish? 
are you just trying to delay and get out of there? You can tell for all of round three, pretty much, Jamal Pogues didn't want to fight. He was getting pieced up a little bit out of range. He needed the fight to be in close. He would get it close and wouldn't do much. No submission ability, no ground and pound. I was not impressed with that fight. And I have a, I have a hunch here that Jamal Pogue comes in here and if he gets tired in round two or three, tries the same thing and ends up with the same result. Going to decision, maybe getting a win by decision and getting no contract. You like that he's natural size heavyweight, six foot two-ish, not too short. You like that he's got some you know, ground ability. But if you watch that fight in a bubble, it's annoying. He's not actually trying to hurt the guy. And when it's at range on the feet, he's getting picked apart. If either guy were to, let's say, get a finish here and get a contract, man, I would be feeding them hardcore in their first fight in the UFC. I don't see them at the talent level right now to be in the UFC. Let me clarify that. I didn't see shit on Paul Renato Jr. Paulo, I have not watched film, but from what I'm seeing on Tapology, uh, I don't see it how he's now a UFC level prospect, but the heavyweight division is thin, y'all. It is very thin. Now, some things about the Tapology that kind of popped out to me. If you look back at Jamal Pogue's Tapology, the first thing is he hasn't fought in two years. Okay, that's just simply not a good thing. The prior opponents that he beat, guys who were like 0 and 1, 0 and 0, you know, people that had never fought before. Philip Tobin was 0 and 0. Dante Harrell was 1 and 2. Justin Trexler was 0 and 0. Heck, he lost his first fight ever as a professional against Taylor Johnson, who was also 0 and 0. Not many good quality wins. Um, and in the case of the fight in LFA, he won one, lost one. Alex Polizzi, pretty good fighter. We just can't determine a lot from James Pogue's tapology than the fact that he's been out of there for two years. Again, big red flag. Now, as for Paulo Renato, his tapology doesn't tell you right away when you look at it. A lot of green, long winning streak. But go back to 2017. He had a four-year break. 2017, he fights Robinson Silveira. Let me pull that fight up because I believe that fight was like two weight classes down from where he's fighting at now. Oh, they don't even have it. It was there earlier, but he was fighting like two weight classes down from where he's at now. 2017. Then he comes back four years later, four-year layoff, and grew himself into a heavyweight. He's fighting very low-level heavyweights, guys that are like zero and zero. His last opponent was six and fourteen coming into that fight. He got the he got the win, round one KO. Hard to have a lot of faith in a guy who's growing, changing divisions, a lot of blind spots. He hasn't fought as well in about a year. It'll be a year in October. Yeah, this fight, guys. Um, I want nothing to do with it from a betting perspective. That's not true. I always want some action. I would look at the under if that prop comes out because you're factoring two guys who maybe one of them has a cardio issue, ends up not being able to finish the fight, maybe finishes because of a cardio issue, not because he's hurt so much. So I think the under would be something I would look at. But betting one of the two on the money line would be, that's basically just throwing shit at the wall. You don't know what to expect. Renato Jr. comes in here, maybe looks better. Jamal Pogues tries a bunch of takedowns, excuse me, doesn't get them, ends up getting fatigued. All right, guys, let's move on from this fight here, but I'm going to take, I'm going to choose Jamal Pogue. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take Jamal Pogue. The reason being is when push comes to shove, he's at least got the wrestling. And if he could do that for two of the three rounds, survive a third round, even when he's tired, kind of like what he did last time in contender series, we may get a very ugly heavyweight fight. I might see Dana yelling, at, not at, at the everyone, but yelling at them or saying something to them after the fight, like, hey, guys, you know, you're two heavyweights. But I'm going to choose Jamal Pokes to win. I got no reasons to back it up. I got no science behind it. I got no math equations, nothing, just a shot in the dark. And that's what you get sometimes in the game of So bet with caution, guys. 
If you have any input, ideas, if you know something I don't know, put in the comment section. Please like and subscribe, and let's move on. That's your breakdown. The last fight in the card is going to be a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Bo Nickel, the American fighter, who's the former NCAA college national champion wrestler from Penn State University. We'll talk more about his accolades when we go over his profile. Going up against Zachary Borrego, who goes by the Dragon. Borrego is 3-0. Borrego's out of Texas from San Antonio, to be specific, 26 years old. 6'2 in height with a 77-inch reach. As for Bo Nickel, 26 years old as well. 6'1 in height, so 1-inch advantage in height to Borrego. We don't have a reach number here in Bo Nickel. Doesn't appear to have the longest arms, and 77-inch reach is quite long, so I'm going to get mad if he gives up a few inches in the reach department. Winning line has Bo Nickel as one of the biggest favorites on Data Mike Contender Series history. <laughs> He's currently sitting at minus 1,400. You can get our buddy here, Zachary Borrego, on the other side at plus 800. It's not really a bettable play on the money line. You take a stab at Zachary Borrego, having watched film, seems to be the inferior overall athlete. When I mean inferior, like not as quick, not as strong, reaction time. Bo Nickel's not the best boxer or striker, having had a wrestling background, but just seems to have all the advantages. It's a shame he couldn't get a better opponent because he's going to go in there. He's going to beat this guy pretty quickly, but the main line is still a little outrageous. Looking at the background of these two fighters, let's talk about our buddy Bo Nickel first. Both of his parents were very athletic. His mom played basketball at Division I in college at San Diego State University. His father played college football at Chadron State University, which I believe Chadron State University or college is Division II. Started wrestling at the age of six years old, stuck with it, moved around all over, moved from Mexico, Wyoming, ends up setting roots in Texas. First year in high school, Texas, gets a second place spot in the States, runner up. Second year in high school, state championship. Third year in high school, fourth year, three years in a row, he was state title winner in Texas, which is really, really good wrestling. His final record in high school when he was all said and done was 183 wins and only seven defeats. Coming out of high school, had some junior national accolades, did some international wrestling, freestyle, signs with Penn State University, goes to Penn State where he goes on to win national championship award Three times, three times. He also won the Dan Hodge Trophy, which would be comparable to the Nissen Award for gymnastics, or if you're talking about football, the Heisman Trophy. It's the top award for the best wrestler in the country. We mentioned before, did some international stuff. He qualified for the Olympic trials to make the 2020 Olympics. But interesting little side note here. He goes to the Olympic trials, and he gets routed, loses two matches, 0-4, 0-6, doesn't score a single point, obviously doesn't make the team. I say that because you can be an amazing wrestler in college, it's still college, and you get to the big stage where you're fighting the best in the world, or even just the best in the country, you know, it's it's tough. I'm not devaluing his college you know, accolades, I'm just putting it in perspective. He went 2-0 as an amateur, he finished both of his amateur bouts, he made his pro debut just recently, he fought 2022 round 1 KO win over John Nolan. That was his pro debut just a few months ago. John Nolan is 0-1. Just putting that in perspective. Now, going back to his amateur opponent, he fought a guy named Billy Good, 2021, just last year. Round 1 KO win. That was an amateur bout. Billy Good is currently 2-3 as an amateur. And then his other prior opponent, David Conley, 2021, last year as well. Round 1 submission win. Amateur bout. David Conley is sitting at 1-1. One one. That's something to keep in the back of the mind. Right, strength of schedule. Now, what's to like about our golden boy here, national championship wrestler Bo Nickel? Well, I love the name Bo. Every time I hear the name Bo, I think about Bo Jackson. I'm dating myself. What does he do well? Obviously, the wrestling foundation, tremendous. He has the energy, 
the pace to keep wrestling for all three rounds. Very explosive. You're talking single legs, double legs, sweeps. He could do all those things. He does them very well. Doesn't have to do them, but they're part of his arsenal. He's making very big improvements with his striking. It's noticeable. Matter of fact, his last fight, I mean, the guy wasn't a very good opponent, but he pieces him up with like a quick combination, one-two combination. Is showing a lot of development in that area. And you can understand he's behind in striking because he wasn't a former kickboxer or Muay Thai or had a boxing background. He was a wrestler and he did this for a long time. He's also managed up to now to be avoiding any pitfalls. His management team is doing a good job with him. They're setting him up well, took two amateur bouts, nothing too difficult. Now he's coming to Dana White Contender Series. Obviously, it seems like Dana, these guys want a guy like this in the roster. There's the only one concern is what if he wins this match? But it's a late round three submission or late round three TKO that's just not really glorious. Dana's done it before where he's said, listen, okay, you got the win, but you were a minus 1,400 favorite. He's actually referenced the money line before, which I thought was so awkward when Dana did that. Nonetheless, if, if he doesn't have the most glorious of wins in the first round, he may end up still not getting a contract. Though I think Dana and company, they do want this guy. Now, what are my concerns for the national championship wrestler? He's got limited MMA experience. We've talked about it. We've underlined it. He hasn't fought much competition. And everyone he's fought has been very inexperienced themselves. We have no idea how he responds if things get hairy in there. He gets chin-checked. He starts bleeding. That's a big unknown. That's a blind spot for us. Now, as for Zachary Borrego, he's from Texas. So he also is from Texas as well. Played high school football, though, not wrestling. I'm scouring the internet for this guy. All of a sudden, I come across... Some highlight films of like a tight end, tall wide receiver, six foot two. And it's Zachary Borrego, pretty good football player and played for a very competitive high school football team. He went three and three as an amateur. Don't love that. He made his pro debut 2022. So he became his pro debut just this year. Okay, he fought three times already this year, which is also a bit of a concern. I'll talk about that in a minute. He fought for Fury FC before this opportunity. His last opponent was against Tommy Britton, 2022, this year. Britain is currently four and nine and has lost his last six straight fights. Puts that in perspective. His prior opponent, William Van Derveer, 2022 this year, round one KO win. Van Derveer is one and two overall. And then the other opponent he had, James Novell this year, round one TKO win. Novell is one and two overall. All three of those wins are against opponents that have negative, you know, winning percentages. Now, what's the like here about Borrego? He is a very active fighter. Okay, you do like the fact that he's fighting the fourth time now this year. He's on top of it. He's eager. He fights out of a southpaw stance, though he'll switch sometimes. So I consider him a multi-stance fighter. He throws a very nasty elbow in the clinch. When he's doing his dirty boxing, I think that's where he's the most dangerous. He has never been finished in his pro career. So he's been pretty durable, but he did get TKO'd and submitted as an amateur. He'll have a one-inch height advantage and should, I assume here, have a two to three-inch reach advantage. Now, what are my concerns here for the Texan fighter? He just fought roughly six weeks ago. At this point in your career, it's important to get fights. It's important to stay active. But how can you be making improvements when you're fighting so often? There's a little bit of time after your fight to recover, unless it's a really fast fight. But the point is there's some recovery. You gain your weight back. You know, you get ready for camp. Go through a weight cut again. Yada, yada, yada. When he's fighting six weeks be between fights, he's not really having the time in the gym to make those big improvements. So from that standpoint, kind of a, a red flag for me. The 500 winning percentage as an amateur, three and three as an amateur, getting finished twice in those three losses as an amateur. That also you know, raises some flags for me. And lastly, he's fought very low competition, guys who have a negative winning percentage. The fights we watched right on this film, we watched Bo Nickel versus Nolan this year, Borrego versus Jagger 
from last year and Borrego versus Britain from this year. If you want to watch any one of those three fights as part of our free video library, look down here below on YouTube. You'll see those links available. My last few thoughts in this fight, hard to bet. Probably just have to stay away from it. I'm going to try to see if a few props become available. The fight not going to decision be a prop I would take a gander at. Bo Nickel by finish of any kind. Maybe pick the round, round one, round two. Those props are not out yet, but when they become available, I'll take a glance. One last thing. Do not parlay this. Don't do that. Do not parlay it. Anything's possible. There's so little value. What if Bo Nickel sprains an ankle or something? It's just there's no value there. If you want to find a play, find a prop you like. Maybe the prop's still a bit chalky. Then parlay it with something else. I got Bo Nickel to win. How can I choose against a guy from Penn State University? That's three and a half hours for me. My daughter played there this past year, her state championship tournament for basketball. As they say, we are Penn State. Okay, Bo Nickel, get it done, buddy. That's your breakdown, guys. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the episode. I'm going to give you a quick review of our picks to win each fight and a few parlays that we've already entered in and our straight picks as well. Starting at the top, we, of course, like Bo Nickel. Not much to talk about. He's a huge favorite, minus 1,400. We're not playing him on main line. When the props do come out, maybe Bo Nickel round one, Bo Nickel by submission, something like that, but that'll be something I'll be playing on the side. Moving down to Jamal Pogues versus Paul Renato Jr. We like Paul, we like Pogues, excuse me, in the spot, minus 275. Some question marks about his sense of urgency at 26, hoping to see some more improvement in his fire in his belly, trying to finish the fight, but I do like Jamal Pogues. Minus 275 becomes a parlay piece, not gonna bet it straight up. Eric Silva at minus 125 over on Bar Boyz Nazarov. We like him a lot. So for Eric Silva at minus 125, taking that as a straight up pick and also going to put him into some parlays. Moving down to Clayton Carpenter, winning over Edgar Chares. At least we think he's going to win over Edgar Chares. Minus 275. We like him in this spot. We're going to be parlaying him. And then the first fight in the card, Carolina Wojcik over Sandra Lovatos. We like Carolina a lot. She's our lock of the card. We like her with a lot of confidence. As for the parlays, here's what we got going on here. We've got Silva to win, Pogues to win, Carpenter to win, and Wojcik to win. If you put those four into a parlay gives you around plus 409 odds we like carpenter to win straight up and pokes to win we're gonna put them in a two-leg parlay that's minus 275 for each guy gives you minus 116 combined odds another two-legger is wojic to win and silva to win that's minus 215 for wojic minus again depends on your book for silva you get about plus 170 odds in that scenario for those just two-leg parlay we have also silva to win and hill to win that's Thiago santos versus jamal hill we already had that as part of the parlay we had hill he won. We combine that with Silva. In the last parlay we're going to have in action here is going to be Carpenter to win at minus 275 and Wojcik to win at minus 215. If you combine those two together, it gives you minus 100 even odds. All our bets are, of course, available on our profile on Bet Amida Tips. It's been a bit of a rough run. We had a little bit of a comeback recently, and then UFC this past weekend shaved our asses. Dana White Contender Series last week. Ugh. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Hope you had a chance to enjoy some Dana White Contender Series on Tuesday night. We've got PFL coming up this week, PFL 8, and also we're back at it with UFC San Diego. See you guys soon. Deuces.